Morning and welcome to Wave Makers on WMNF with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And answering phones for us today is seasoned citizen John Dunn. If you want to join our conversation, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 and John will get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813 0885. Someday, if you live long enough, you will get a letter in the mail from Jeff Johnson's organization and mutter to yourself, I'm not that old. <laughs> That's because Jeff Johnson is president of AARP Florida, which represents the interests of 8.6 million Floridians aged 50 and over. Welcome, Jeff. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Yes, I enjoy being the angel of death for people. <laughs> I should mention that uh, I write occasionally uh, for the AARP Bulletin and just started blogging for them. Founded in 1958 as the American Association of Retired Persons, the National AARP boasts more than 38 million members. AARP Florida, meanwhile, has 2.8 million members, second only to California. And, you know, Jeff, we have talked a lot on this show about the ongoing housing crisis, all the transportation problems this region is experiencing. And those are two issues that AARP has been working on, both locally and in Tallahassee. In fact, AARP advocates are, are pressing a lot of issues in the state. Uh, before we get to those issues, though, Jeff, tell us how AARP got started and how you got involved. Sure. Yeah, happy to, Tom. And, again, thanks for having me on the show. The... The story really ties back to those issues in many respects. And, and when you think about the things that ARP advocates about, almost all of them tie back to our origin. So we were founded by a woman who was a school principal in California. Back at the time, she was actually the first woman to be a principal in the state of California. And her name was Dr. Ethel Percy Andrus. She retired because she needed to take care of her mom. And family caregiving is something that we all know uh, all too well. And then her mom got better, which usually isn't the case. And so she got bored and figured out, you know, I have to do something with my time. So she volunteered for the Retired Teachers Association locally on their uh, welfare committee to go check on people. So one day she went to check on a retired teacher who was on her list, went to the front door, and the people there said, uh, yeah, we don't have anybody here by that name. There's, there's, you know, she doesn't live here. And so Dr. Andrew said, but, you know, her name is on this list. She's supposed to live here. And they said, well, you might be talking about the woman who lives out back. And so she went around back and there was a little chicken coop <laughs> that this woman lived in. Now she lived there because she retired at a time as oh, a no. teacher when there was no social security. Healthcare costs were, uh, for teachers in California, healthcare costs were so high because Medicare didn't exist. All she could afford was this converted shack, this converted chicken coop. And that angered Dr. Andrews so much that somebody who had given their career to the community would be left to the side and not even known the name of by the people in the, in the front house that she thought we have to do better than this. So she got the, the California retired teachers, um, but they're not powerful enough because it's just one state. So she realized that if all the state retired teachers associations banded together, they might be able to make a difference. And so she founded the National Retired Teachers Association in 1947, and they worked in advocacy in the legislature and in Congress. They worked in the marketplace to try to get affordable health insurance for retired teachers, because back then nobody wanted to write insurance, health insurance for 
for retirees. Mm-hmm. And then they work to give back to their community because that's what retired teachers do. And uh, 10 years, 11 years later, 1958, she'd heard from so many people said, I want to join NRTA, National Retired Teachers Association, but I've never been a teacher, never worked in a school, that she founded the American Association for Retired Persons. And that's where we are today. And when you think about the things we work on, things like Social Security and Medicare and affordable health care at the local level, things like housing and how you make a community one where people can stay engaged. All of those issues boil back to that initial encounter that she'd happen to have because she volunteered in her community. And we have talked, as I mentioned, a lot about the housing crisis, but we often talk about it through the lens of how uh, younger people can't afford to uh, find a place to live. Um, And that's true, but it's also challenging to people uh, 50 and above, For right, sure. Jeff? Um, sure. So yeah. w- w- tell us about that challenge and uh, but more importantly, what are the solutions for this? Well, thanks. Yeah, the solutions are harder than the challenge. The One of the things uh, that we have seen, certainly over the last 20 years or so that I've been here, is the growing number of people who retired here or who worked here their whole career and you know didn't make a ton of money but made enough to get by and they've got Social Security and they maybe saved a little bit of money or have a pension and it no longer goes far enough to pay the rent. And as we have seen in our cities, a lot of housing that was kind of middle income, retiree friendly or worker friendly housing get sucked up and turned into higher priced condos. Or as we have seen mobile home parks get bought out Mm -hmm. by developers who want to build McMansions or just gated communities, those people who live there don't have another place to go. So that that housing pool is shrinking. And we are hearing, and this is true in Florida, but honestly, it's true in much of the country, more and more people who are homeless for the first time as elders. So these are not necessarily Mm -hmm. the folks that we traditionally think of as those experiencing homelessness. These are people who have just been priced out of all the options that are out there. So they probably find themselves, if you wanted, they want to downsize or they have a house with a bedroom upstairs and they want one floor, it's probably hard for them to find a place to live. Very, very true. Yeah, really good point, Janet. And I think that uh, to Tom's point, one of the things, so I don't think there is a silver bullet. I do think that it takes a lot. It takes uh, more than anything, building new opportunities, new housing stock for people. And I think your point, Janet, is a really good one. One of the things that ARP has really focused on is how do we make it easier for people to downsize? Because I don't know about you all, but where I live, the only houses that are getting built are way bigger than anything that right. was around them. And so, and way more expensive than we could afford. Right. Yeah, absolutely true. And so our, our focus has been, how do you build these accessory dwelling units, which in our older communities, our older cities, we know garage apartments are mm-hmm. pretty common. In it's a fancy Saint term Pete for for a mother-in-law apartment right. or, or a garage a, apartment. Yep, they'll call them granny flat, um, you know, lots of different uh, names, which all get to the same thing. A smaller place that is not the primary house, but is on the same lot and gives people an opportunity. You may be the homeowner and be able to bring in some income or bring in somebody who can be a caregiver for you and have them live Ah. there. Or the reverse, if you're looking to downsize and you don't want to take on a, you know, a big house to be able to live in a smaller unit like that can be really helpful. And so that's the thing that we're seeing in both Tampa and St. Petersburg. There's a lot of debate right now, I think in both cities about 
What do we allow? What does it look like? Um, and, and I think from ARP's perspective, the more the the more the better in terms of providing opportunities for uh, for people to have options. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers with Janet and Tom and WMNF, and our guest is uh, Jeff Johnson from the um, AARP. Um, if you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org. And we're talking right now about housing for the elderly or seniors. Uh, we On this show, we've talked a lot about how affordable housing is an issue for young people, but it's also an issue for um, people who are um, at the later stages of their life. So you're talking about accessory dwelling units and that ARP is involved in that. How, what does that look like? What are you doing in Tampa and St. Pete to advocate for that? So good question. Uh, well, fortunately, ARP's national organization has a lot of good resources that we've been able to provide to local advocates who may or may not be ARP members. There are some really young folks who are out there advocating on these issues. If I may say, Nathan yes. Hagen, if you happen to be listening today, <laughs> tune in. Jeff Johnson could be a partner for you. Nathan runs oh. Yimby Tampa and has been a wave maker on our show. Talked right. about this uh, probably a year ago and is yeah. making some progress on that front. And uh, and St. Pete also has a YIMBY and, and think they do. So no, do you work absolutely. with them as well? So the and and actually just to to use to use Nathan if he's not listening, Nathan came to us and said, look, I know ARP has a model ordinance for how to do accessible dwelling units. Can we can we use that for Yimby Tampa? Which of course happy yes. to do that. Yeah, for sure. And on, on St. Pete, St. Pete actually just this week their city council is having a final meeting on an ADU ordinance that we've weighed in and support on and have ARP members who are uh, among the many who are sending letters or showing up at the committees. And so um, that's what it looks like. ARP is, uh, as a big national organization, we're primarily a volunteer-driven organization. So it, it is really people like your listeners who want to get involved that make ARP go and help us do whatever it is we do. Do they have to be members uh, to, to No, we do not card. So <laughs> if you are under 50, actually you could join ARP under 52, but you do not have to be an ARP member in order to be a volunteer. We are happy to work with people of all ages who are interested in these issues that affect those who are 50 and over. Uh, uh, let's stick with the housing issue for a second because another related item you all have been working on, which both Tampa and St. Pete have been working on, is the missing middle, mm -hmm. these um, maybe four or six uh, unit apartments, buildings that were pretty common uh, before World War II and then kind of disappeared after that. Tell us about that. Uh, absolutely. So again, it's all about options, right? Giving people more choices other than just the one big house. And so whether it's duplexes or triplexes or even four, um, and there are even courtyard apartments that you'll see a couple of places around the Tampa Bay area that still have. These all came in before major zoning kicked in around the 1960s. And I happen to live across the street from a quad. So I can say firsthand, the people who've lived there are people who couldn't afford to live in our neighborhood otherwise. Mm -hmm. and, and including some retirees who, you know, military retirees, got a pension, but doesn't have a ton of money and didn't need a lot of space. And to be in a in an apartment with his wife that is you know, fits them worked really, really well. Similarly, our next door neighbors have garage apartments and they've had, 
I, I've had uh, firefighters live next door. I've had police officers live next door. I've had nurses who live next door because it's an opportunity for a place to get your start. Because we hear, and I think you guys probably hear this too, people who are making our economy go, making our systems go, who are living two counties away because that's the only place they can afford something. And that seems silly. And then that ties into the transportation issue we have, Absolutely. which is that, yeah, you're too far out. If you don't have transportation, then you can't get to work employment centers. Well, that's right. And, and of course, the way Florida was built was all around the car because it's primarily post-World War II. One of the things that we recognize is not not everybody wants to drive all the time. And particularly as you age, you may get to the point where you don't want to have to drive to go to the grocery store. Or you can't drive. Doctors. Or the, absolutely. Well, it's let's not face a good it, idea. we are living longer. And you will get to a certain point. I, there's a, an age, I think, that AARP has studied. I can't remember if it's 80, where, you know, people stop driving. Well, if yeah. you stop driving... Then it's, what do you do? Then what and, do you and do? Especially when you think about the communities that have been built here where you live at the end of a cul-de-sac, it is a long, long way to get to any sort of retail yep. or anything. Um, it's very difficult. And so uh, Laura Cantwell, who's our, our lead on these livable issues, will tell you that everybody hits that age at a different point, but people on average live about seven years longer than their uh, ability to drive safely. And so what do they do for that time? Really, I'm living like 40 years longer than my ability to drive safely. (laughs) (laughs) No comment. I mean, that's the other thing is I see, uh, look, uh, for those of us with with younger kids, they already don't want to drive. You know, I think that we, as we look at what the future of America, the future of Florida looks like, trying to build community where people don't have to get in a car to go everywhere is going to be for the good. And I, we, I, our office is in downtown St. Pete, and in our building are, uh, I want to say kids, but they're young adults who are professionals who say, yeah, I don't have a car. I just come right down central from the apartments that I'm in, and I'm able to get everything I want. How do we build those communities in a lot of different ways? Because not everybody wants to live downtown. Either. And not everybody wants to live in the villages. Not that there's anything wrong with the right. villages, but... Some people like the urban environment that St. Pete has. Absolutely. Oh, totally. I mean, I think that the, when I started, uh, so again, I've been at ARP about 23 years now. And when I started, a lot of people wondered whether developments like the villages would continue because what they heard from many baby boom generation was that wasn't what they wanted. They wanted to live in cities. I think the reality is we have both. So if you look at the downtowns in Tampa and St. Petersburg, for instance, you will see, or Sarasota for that matter, you will see see a lot of people who are retirees moving into apartments or condos that may be marketed for 20-somethings, but are affordable, uh, more affordable for those who are retiring. And at the same time, Sun City Center's not going away. Top of the world's not going away. Those those age-segregated housing communities are an attraction for some people. And I think, again, it's about diversity of options. Um, let's take a call from DeAndre from Brandon, who's on the line. He's got a question for you about helping... Um um, families help manage money for their elderly fam- family members. I um, mean, if you want to be like DeAndre and call in and ask a question, you can do that. It's very easy. Just call 813-239-9663, or you can send us an email at dj at wmnf.org. We're talking to Jeff Johnson from the AARP. Do you know an older person who is struggling to find housing or struggling to get themselves around this community? Call us now. All right. DeAndre, you are... On the line. What's on your mind, DeAndre? You there? Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. That's exactly what I was hoping to find out. Like, how do 
I, as a, 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 a child to an elderly uh, uh, family member or parent, um, help them manage their finances and effectively, well, I, I don't have any instructions on how to do that. And she's at a point now where things are, you know, so to where she's looking to have to probably go back to work. And she's got a growth on her spine, a carpal tunnel. She's, you know, before, you know, the web, she was carrying, you know, files back and forth from building to building downtown. And then after having typed them up, you know, you know, super speedy, you know, and now she, you know, between her eyes and other issues, she should not be working. Um, but I just don't know what to do. Do you have a program that helps? Uh, the elderly or uh, the children of elderly, you know, deal with their finances. You know, is, is, is there something like that you guys got going on? Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, thanks for that. Thanks call, for DeAndre. the call, DeAndre. And I and I appreciate too, by the way, um, DeAndre, your role as a family caregiver. Again, that is something that I think we often overlook and don't talk about. We talk about how kid how people raise kids, but we don't talk about what it means to be the adult child who is caring for an aging parent. So, a, a couple of things I'm going to mention. First of all, at at our website at ARP.org, there's a lot of information both about family caregivers and how they can best take care of their family members, but also around money management. There's actually a, um, a site called arp.org slash money map, which is a good way to try to get a handle on budget issues. Um, so I would recommend that. Here's some other things that I would throw out to you. ARP does provide a volunteer-driven program called ARP Tax Aid that helps people with tax preparation. So for instance, if you are taking care of your parents and um, your one of your parents passes away and, and that was the one who did the taxes, Often having hmm. somebody to go to can help sort out taxes is really helpful. And for those of you out here who have like a little bit of accounting background or just interested in numbers, it's a great volunteer opportunity that's hugely rewarding to help people with their taxes oh. through the ARP Foundation Tax Aid. A couple other things though I got to hit. Um, the, our foundation also uh, runs a program called the Se- Senior Community Service Employment Program, which is a mouthful, SCSCP, which helps people uh, retrain for the workforce. So if you are somebody who's 45 and over, which is a really young bar, I recognize, um, who is in a position where you need to work and you've been out of the workforce for a long time or you realize your skills no longer match the workforce, that SCSCP program will help train you for the jobs that are out there, will place you with an employer who is looking to hire somebody wow. so that you can test out and learn whether it's the right fit and then move on. So, so that's also a 45 and over. So 45 and over can, I mean, yes. so 40, the, it's hard to get a job when you're over 45 out there trying, you know. Yeah, well, so Janet, you hit on a really good point because age discrimination laws kick in at 45. And what I have found over the years is that you hear from people in their late 40s who get passed over yeah. all the time who say, yeah, the employer thinks I'm, I'm too old for this place and, and won't necessarily say it in those words. So um, it's very tough. It's harder to prove age discrimination than any other form of legal discrimination in the workplace. Um, we've got an email. We're just talking about um, finances, but we have an email from David Bryant who says he's turning fifty in October, so he might be he will be eligible for AARP membership soon. He wants to know if Jeff, if you can speak about the effects of inflation on elderly people on fixed income. I fear these people will be evicted because they can't afford rent. Yeah, oh, it's, it's true. And by the way, we will find you when you turn 50. The, um, <laughs> you will get that letter I mentioned. Yeah, the, uh, 
Um, yes, we've seen, We, in fact, our, our researchers have done a fair bit of um, survey work with those who are older on how inflation has hit them. We have seen people kind of like DeAndre's mom who are thinking about going back to work, whether they had planned on that or not. Um, and we've seen them look to cut back in other areas of their lives. What we are most concerned about is when people cut back on the things that are essential to their health. So when people don't uh, fill their prescriptions because they cost too much or when people are not um, taking advantage of programs like SNAP to help with nutrition and are not eating enough. We have seen some of that. And I think uh, David uh, teed up the issue we already talked about that rent is a big budget line for a whole bunch of people. And it is a major concern and not just rent. If you own your own home, of course, property insurance and property taxes as well. When we were um, talking about preparing for the show, we talked a little bit about the missing middle in St. Petersburg. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So uh, that's right. We were talking just a minute ago that, again, those duplexes, triplexes, quads used to be a major part of our communities. And I think that one of the things that the city has attempted to do in St. Petersburg, and I, it wouldn't surprise me if others are looking at too, is- But Tampa's how, looking at it as well. Good, good. Yeah. So like, how do we take, especially, how do we take those big homes that are way too big for the, the shrinking family sizes that we have and give the owners an opportunity to turn them into something where they might live in half and somebody else might live in half or find other ways to, um, to kind of maximize that square footage, if you will, in a way that helps bring more people under the roof. And so I think that's um, a major initiative that, uh, again, I. I respect that there are a lot of people who are concerned about, will that have an impact on traffic? Will it have an impact on, you know, sewers, on all those sorts of things? Or will it bring uh, people into our neighborhood we're not used to being with? Because that's some of it, let's face it. They're renters, Jeff. Yeah. It's like it's a, a pejorative term now. Well, I didn't know. I, For Tom, some neighborhoods. Tom, I, I agree. And I think that to some extent, um, you see that l- more in the neighborhoods of, for people who live in neighborhoods that are newer, that are built post the the major zoning codes in the 1960s. Again, if you live in a historic the neighborhood. The Old Northeast. Right. Old Northeast is Hyde a great Park. example where there are yep. little apartments all over the place where it, it is very common to have renters and owners live together. And that um, the worst fears that I have heard from those who are opposed to this, uh, these kind of ordinances don't translate into the reality at all. Well, we have talked uh, quite a bit about your work on the local level, but uh, there is this little thing called the legislature going on right now in Tallahassee. Uh, as Sean Canan just discussed the education bill, uh, but uh, some of the issues that you work on, they're working on, and uh, one of the things is housing. So what are you doing uh, on the statewide level in Tallahassee to get uh, laws passed? Yeah, I think that the uh, the Senate, the Florida Senate in particular, uh, Senate President Kathleen Pesadomo has made it a real priority to pass affordable housing legislation. And I think that as is true with any major bill, there are things for people to love and things for those same people to hate. And I, and what we have heard from uh, folks across the, the gamut is that this is one of those bills. So there's a lot of incentive for people to build more affordable and workforce housing. And in, so when people say workforce housing, you think the firefighter, the police officer, or the teacher, which is great. That price point is one that usually will also hit retirees on Social Security and a small pension. And so um, we see that as a positive but in both ways, because if you are retired or if, even if you're still in the workforce, you need firefighters and police and nurses, but also 
it is an option that is available. I think that what we have heard as a, as a concern is that there's some discussion of preempting some local attempts to try to regulate rent increases. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the whole, we, we've seen, uh, I mean, over the, over the years, we have seen the legislature repeatedly pull money away from affordable housing to fund other priorities that it has. This is a really good example of the reverse happening, of not only keeping the affordable housing commitments that the state has already had in statute and kind of snuck a- around in the past good, but also putting more energy and attention and, and more flexibility into people to uh, into developers to be able to, to go differently from what we've seen so far in terms of providing options. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers and WMNF. Our guest is Jeff Johnson from the AARP, and we've been talking about affordable housing and seniors. Um, and closely connected to that is transportation, transportation issues, because we were started talking about that a little bit, that affordable housing tends to be further out. Transportation is, uh, you don't have transportation. So what are you doing on that front in terms of locally or state? It's kind of funny that Florida is considered a retirement state where people, and yet we have so few options for getting around other than yeah. a car, which yeah. is difficult for seniors sometimes. No, absolutely true. And I think that we uh, certainly encourage the sort of development that allows people to get around without having to get in their car. But the other thing is how do we make roads as safe as possible? So efforts in cities across the Bay Area for complete streets, so roads that don't just focus on drivers, but also on cyclists and pedestrians. We have ARP volunteers who represent uh, the interests of those who are not behind the wheel of a car on local committees like complete streets committees or, or um, bike pedestrian committees. And what I'll say is that what I tend to find, and, and I would encourage your listeners who might be interested in getting involved, we need people who can represent pedestrians because cyclists tend to have a real passion for cycling. Most of us don't have that much of a hmm. passion for walking to the store. It's just how we get to the store if we don't want to get behind the wheel of a car. And I think having that balance is really important. Fortunately, this is not a competitive environment and we're all working together. But one of the things that we've noticed when we have shown up as volunteers or as staff on those sort of committees is people say, wow, we're only used to drivers and cyclists. And so to have somebody who's representing the perspective of, oh, maybe we should make the the red lights stay red a little bit longer so somebody can actually make it all the way across the yep. street. Those sorts of changes don't get made unless you actually have somebody who's there voicing that perspective. So I'm involved with Walk Bike Tampa. I'm on the board yeah. of Walk Bike Tampa and we periodically do walk audits of neighborhoods where we um, walk around for a mile or so and look at what the condition of the sidewalks are, the crosswalks, the crossing signals for pedestrians. And we use a form developed by the AARP. (laughs) Uh, That is the form that we use. I was going to mention it if you didn't bring it up. So I'm glad it's being used. Good. We're going to take credit for it. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, we use that. And that's interesting because the elderly people are not going to be riding bikes. And you're right. Cyclists do a very good job of advocating for themselves. And there are not a lot of people advocating for people who are walking, which tend to be seniors. And it is, it is remarkable. Not tend to be, but 
often include, yeah, yeah, includes, exactly. yeah, and and it is a, a it is one of those cases where if we make it a walkable community, it'll work for older people and younger people alike. And so we often talk about how when the ADA came in and and we started to see curb cuts, how many. Um, parents pushing strollers appreciated those curb cuts because it right. made life a lot easier. And this, and so the same is true kind of across the board. If you have contiguous sidewalks that are wide enough to get you safely off of the uh, away from traffic to where you want to go or places where you can cross major streets that are safe, certainly Vision Zero, which is an initiative that I know Hillsborough County has done, I believe others in the Tampa Bay area to try to reduce pedestrian fatalities to mm-hmm. zero. That's another area where we, we see a lot of opportunity for improvement. And we do see the communities in this area trying to do things differently to make sure that drivers are paying attention to all those other people who have rights to that roadway. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of effort to, uh, as you said, the complete streets and, and make them better by design yeah. so that they help people who are, who are walking and bicycling. But do you see any hope for increasing the funding for uh, mass transit options? Uh, that seems to be the really difficult issue uh, to push through and, and, and get accomplished, even putting it within the context of helping our older Residents. So, yep. what are you doing in Tallahassee this we, year regarding that? No, good question. And and I think that uh, you're right, Tom. That that transportation issues have tended to default to the car. What we have seen is that policymakers recognize that that's not a healthy and sustainable way to grow over time. That that those who work in the De- Department of Highway Transportation, those who work in the local metropolitan planning organizations, recognize that building those other ways to get around is really important. But finding the money for things like high speed rail, bus rapid transit, you know, those sorts of initiatives, uh, it can be tough. I think what to the extent that I see uh, signs of hope is that some of the things that have been started here are popular, that the sun runner that runs oh, in yeah. St. Pete out to the beach that people are enjoying. That's that that's the first real bus rapid transit effort that's been done in the Tampa Bay area. Certainly. So if you live in a retirement community in downtown St. Pete, you can hop on that thing, go to the beach. Absolutely. Come right back, and it's free for now. Yeah. And it's been, like you said, extremely popular, right? Uh, similarly, the Cross Bay Ferry, right, which has been going on for a couple of years, ha- has connected Tampa and St. Petersburg in a way that doesn't involve having to get on any of the bridges. So that is another thing that, again, the popularity helps prove the case that people do want options. I think even though I would say that, generally speaking, it is not people 50 and over who are taking advantage of it, the fact that you're seeing more of those little micro-transit options, the, the micro, uh, like the scooters Scoot, and the yeah. bikes, those kinds of things, um, show that people are interested in finding other ways to get around. And I think that in the long run, that's helpful. It is very difficult in the short run in Tallahassee to get more funding specifically for transportation, though. Um, our guest today is Jeff Johnson from the AARP, American Association of Retired Peoples and Persons, and we will be back right after this. It was 60 years ago that the Beatles released their first album, Please Please Me. To celebrate, WMNF is putting on a tribute to the Beatles, 60 years, 60 songs, all at Skipper Smokehouse, Saturday, March 25th. Seventeen bands will do their renditions of the Beatles. You'll hear rock, folk, blues, jazz, rockabilly, punk, bluegrass, ukulele, reggae, and more. One thing I can tell you is you got to be free. Come together right now. Over me. 
It's the WMNF tribute to the Beatles like no one else can do. 60 years, 60 songs. Saturday, March 25th, Skipper Smokehouse, doors at 5, music at 6. Information and tickets at WMNF.org or 813-238-8001. All right, and we're back. That's going to be a great show this weekend. Um, so, Jeff, you wanted to mention something about yeah. another resource for DeAndre and his his um, mother. Thank you, yes. So a couple of things for people who are taking care of aging parents. There are area agencies on aging in the Tampa Bay area. There are actually a couple of them, but you can get to them easily by calling a toll-free number, 1-800-96-ELDER is the elder helpline. And there are a host of resources that you can access through there. And we're also at ARP working with the local 211 to develop more resources for family caregivers. So I think there's broader recognition that the, that people like DeAndre are dealing with a lot of challenges and that um, giving them help, giving them places to go is, is something that we haven't done very well as a society. So tell us about how you got involved in AARP. Yeah, kind of weird. So I... Um, I was actually, so the short story is I was working for the Tampa Bay Devil Rays selling tickets after the first season. And one of our accounts was an AARP night at the ballpark because the AARP often will do local events where people get discounts. And uh, about, I don't know, a year later, six months later, I was talking to my contact there and she said, hey, we're hiring for somebody to be an event manager. And it's pretty much what you do at the Rays. But, you know, we're old people, so we don't do things at night or on the weekends, which was not true, by the way, still isn't true. But I was at the point in my life where I was kind of ready to move from a, a short career in sports to something that was a little more meaningful. And I thought I would work for ARP for about a year or so, figure out what this most powerful advocacy organization in the country does, and then decide what to do next. And I have continued to be fascinated by the breadth of the issues that we work on and continue to be really energized and inspired by the people I get to work with, both volunteers and staff. And so you, you went there more than 20 years ago and you haven't left. Yeah, yeah. I and hopefully that's not too big of an indictment on on me. But I think it really has been just a fascinating place to be. I mean, we've been in the middle of some of the biggest issues that this country has dealt with uh, nationally, state and local level. And it's just uh, fascinating. One of the things that I, I have grown to really treasure is that we are among probably a fairly few organizations that is uh, really kind of almost neurotically nonpartisan and not, and being able to be in the political process to try to influence policy for good without being on either side is a place that I prefer to be because while it is hazardous, uh, when you stand in the middle of the road, you get hit by traffic coming and going. Um, it's also a great perspective to be able to say, okay, so I know that one side wants one thing, one side wants another thing, but what's the best for us all together and how do we get to that? Well, uh, so again, a lot of people don't even realize how much advocacy AARP does. Let's let's call it what it is. It's lobbying. You're mm -hmm. trying to get bills passed that will benefit older Floridians. And, and one of the first big victories you had, I think, uh, when you joined AARP, dealt with nursing homes because nursing homes in Florida were notoriously bad. So tell us about that. It was 20 years ago? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, 2001 was the major nursing home reform legislation. And before that time, what you saw is people would die in nursing homes of ant bites or they would die of pressure sores because they had uh, nobody taking care of them. There weren't those basic staffing standards. And so in an initiative that the nursing home industry really led to try to curtail lawsuits against them, we and others were able to push to say, we need to make sure that the care that you're 
you're providing is adequate. And so we um, were able to get staffing standards passed that never were fully implemented, but even at their peak, we're still among the best in the country, even though they didn't get to the point that we had hoped for in the law. The last couple of years, we've seen those scaled back again. And I think one of the things that's really important is, so long-term care is primarily paid for by Medicaid. Most of us do not have the funds to pay for nursing home care for a long period of time. And so what happens is people who need nursing home care eventually or pretty quickly run through their money and qualify for Medicaid. And that's what pays for their care, us as taxpayers. It is a significant part of the state's budget, a significant part of the state Medicaid budget. And it's something that probably out of 160 legislators, there may be one or two who came into that job knowing that their job was really to make sure that our long-term care system provided this care. And so we have a huge issue each cycle of trying to educate legislators about this really important part of their job, which is, again, a significant part of the budget that they pass, but also a life and death for a lot of people who are living here in Tampa Bay and across the state. So what's been happening since then? So over the last several years, what we've seen is the industry look to curtail or scale back those staffing standards. And especially during the, uh, especially during the pandemic, uh, the, as you may recall, it was really hard to hire people for lots of jobs at that point. And that was certainly true in nursing homes as well, because that's hard work and it doesn't pay very much, frankly. People who do that work do it because they love it. They love the people that they're taking care of and there weren't enough of them to go around. So the nursing home said, rather than um, scale back the number of beds that we can serve to match the number of people that we have. Let's just lower the standards. And if people don't get quite as much care, well, you know, better than nothing. We have reached the point where the industry is now able to count the time that an activities director or a physical therapist or others spend towards those minimum staffing hours, even though what people really need for the, the those minimum staffing uh, hours that the certified nursing assistants provide are things like changing adult diapers or helping people people to the bathroom or feeding them. And those are not necessarily things that those other folks uh, do. And making sure they don't have bed sores because yeah. they lay in that bed all day long. Yeah, exactly. It has been um, a concern that we have. So this past last session, this uh, last, last initiative, right, in 2022. And so the data is not yet out uh, for what is going to happen as a result of that. But our concerns are pretty grave. I mean, again, I, as one of the ones who was around when we saw that happen, when we saw people dying of ant bites, when we saw people dying of bed sores, mm-hmm. we're really afraid that we may be headed back to that territory. But uh, I think it's pretty... Uh, pretty uh, agreed that most people don't want to end up in a nursing home Absolutely. or a long care facility, term care facility. They would like to age in place, which is what a lot of your policies regarding housing, transportation are focused on. But that also puts a burden to a certain extent on the community and family members uh, because a lot of care is provided by family members. Yeah, so sure. uh, is there anything, any resources out there for people? And if you're listening to this and you have a family member who needs help like this, please give us a call and and, and tell us your story because it's those stories that I think really resonate with lawmakers. But what can be done to help people who are helping family members. Sure. Yeah. A couple of things. So let me say, first of all, for those who are out there, it is surprising to me the number of people I talk to where I've known them for a long time and it just never came up. 
that they are taking care of, a, a parent who may be living with them or they may be um, from a distance trying to help somebody manage this. And I think that it's really important that people do get a chance to recognize that they're not alone because everybody feels like they're trying to figure out for themselves, like DeAndre said earlier, how to manage the finances or how to manage medication or you know how to talk to mom or dad about not driving anymore, those sorts of things. That uh, resource I gave earlier, the Elder Helpline, 1-800-96-ELDER, connects us to the area agencies on aging. Those primarily, their, their main job is to provide the home and community-based long-term care that the state funds. So we talked about nursing homes earlier, which is how most long-term care gets delivered by the state for those who qualify. But there are some programs that provide people care at home. And I think that it's worth talking to, uh, to those folks to see if your family member is eligible. And even if they're not, they're also there to be a resource center for people, regardless of what your financial or physical needs are, to help navigate this part of life that people don't know about. Also, I will say ARP.org slash caregiving has a host of resources too. But Tom, to your point about how we help people avoid nursing homes, this, those state programs for home and community-based long-term care are really wonderful and do great work. They're horribly underfunded. Mm-hmm. So there is a waiting list in the state of about 100,000 people who are Floridians who need long-term care, who could go into a nursing home today, would rather stay at home, and we're not willing to fund that, even though it would be less expensive than what we as a taxpayer will pay for that person to be in a nursing and home. And when you say fund that, that means having someone go by their house and check on them. and Correct. So one of the best it's things... It's not full-time, round-the-clock right. care, necessarily. Absolutely right. So, so in um, the home and community-based world, one of the best things is that you have a case manager who comes in and assesses what you do need. You might mm-hmm. need therapy a couple of times a week. You might need somebody to help with chores, frankly, you know, because living alone can be hard. Or you might need somebody to help mo- with more extensive things, like helping get you out of bed or helping with medicine. Um, having that assessment is really critical as kind of a roadmap for but even so, it is very rarely that 24-7 care that we, we see in a nursing home or in a, another institutional setting. And so that's why it gives you more independence. It gives your family a, a little bit of rest because usually what happens is people turn to those state programs after the family members have been exhausted or just have to have to go back to work or take care of their kids or those other responsibilities that family members are juggling. So the legislature's in session and they're working on this issue. What, what does it take to help uh, solve this problem, Jeff? Uh, well, unfortunately, money, I guess, it right? takes money. <laughs> exactly, Tom. And I mean, the good news is that everybody involved recognizes that. And so there are some funding increases already in the budget proposals that the governor's put forward, that the legislature's put forward. Are they sufficient? They are not sufficient, but they are a starting point. And, and there's some discussion among legislative leaders of, can we put more money in there? Now, the reality is, again, 100,000 people on a waiting list are going to be hard to clear mm. in any one year. Yeah. And the other reality is our demographics are such that this population is growing, not shrinking. And so we need to be prepared not only for those who currently need care, but also looking down the road to those who are going to need care in the future to bridge back to where we started. This is why it's important for us to design community options that allow people to live independently as long as possible in settings where they don't trip or fall going downstairs or where they're able to you know, get around and get the healthy food that they need without getting into a car because it's those sorts of accidents or um, settings that are just not healthy for people as they age that end up leading to the need for care that puts people in Mm. nursing homes in the long run. And we have an email from Jeff Smith 
Smith, who said, um, thanks for having Jeff on the show today. I had no clue as to the breadth and depth of AARP Florida. I particularly liked Mr. Johnson's concept that pedestrians need representation. Per the numbers, that is something essential here in the Bay Area, and that is true. So we've been talking a lot about retirement. This is the AARP, yet you can become a member at age 50. So why the disconnect? I, I don't know very many people at all who retire at age 50 these days, I think. And, you know, all, all over the world, they're trying to get people to work longer and longer. Yeah. So tell me how it started at 50 so when, and uh, what, what, what the numbers are showing. And also, I, I'd like to hear if you give us a call and tell us, 813-239-9663, when do you want to retire? When will you retire? Are you retired? Was Some it early enough? Say they never want to retire. Do you say, never want to retire? And so the, there was a point before I started at ARP where uh, we dropped the actual name American Association for Retired Persons. We only go by ARP, just like we okay, don't Okay, so talk don't about, say that anymore. Yeah, just like we don't say International Business Machines or just IBM or gotcha. you know AT and T. Um, and it's because so many of our members are not retired and don't plan on retiring. Right. I think so. That, it's just American Association of Old People. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, AARP. <laughs> Just go with the letters, <laughs> let it write in that. The, uh, but no, old people will also get you in trouble for different reasons. The um, When the organization was founded, it was 55. Uh, again, it was pre-Medicare. And for many of us, I think Medicare has ended up setting the bar for when people yeah. retire. 65, you qualify for Medicare. Social Security, of course, um, early retirement at 62. Full benefits are headed towards 67 right now. Um, and it tends to be in that range. To answer your question, we lowered it to 50. Again, this was before my time, but my understanding is, we A, we had enough people who were really interested in accessing some of the programs and services and benefits that we had. Um, B, recognize that the issues are the same. That taking care of your parents doesn't just happen when you're 50. Uh, frankly, a lot of times it happens when you're 30. We talk to millennials who are taking care of aging parents. And planning for your future and beginning to ask that question, what does retirement look like and when's it going to happen, is something that once you hit 50, you should begin to be thinking about. Um, again, for a lot of people, the answer is never, either because they can't afford it or because they just uh, don't ever want to stop what they're doing. I So my father retired. He was a dentist. He retired at 84. Um, he just loved getting his hands in your mouth. He honestly did. Yeah. He, and he, um, he didn't have anything that he would rather do. And I've worked with people at ARP who have worked well into their 70s because they say, I look at what my retirement options and I like this better. And I also know people, uh, including family members, who retired and failed at it. I have, I have a, a sister who has come back to work three or four different times. She retires, says she's done. Then she volunteers somewhere. And then they put her on the board. And then they need an executive director or a marketing <laughs> person or whatever. She gets sucked back in. So I think what we're realizing is that for some people, retirement is always going to be a fluid concept. But mm -hmm. if you don't plan for not only the, the financial piece of that, of how you can afford, but also the how am I going to find purpose and connection in my life as you go forward, it's not going to be a, it's not going to be a great experience. Do we know anything in general, though? Are people retiring younger or older now than they used to? 
We're seeing people retire later, generally. Later, because, because people are healthier, yeah, they can exactly, work longer. Remaining healthier, and because many of our jobs are not as physically demanding right. as past generations. But the other thing that you're seeing is people who are dropping in out of the workforce a lot more. So traditionally, what you would see is um, somebody, usually a woman, might leave the workforce when their kids are young and then come back in. What we're seeing more is just, uh, especially with the rise of the gig economy, people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, all saying, okay, I'm going to go do this for a while, you know, drive Uber or, you know, deliver meals or whatever, and then come back to a a career at a later point. And I don't know that we know as a society what that looks like when people are 70. But it's different, but certainly different from the day when people would work for one place for 40 years and then have a pension. Yeah, for sure. We got a couple callers on the line. We've got Ozzy from Brandon. Ozzy from Brandon. I'm going to take your call. Ozzy, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Good uh, afternoon, or good morning, rather. So I, I, I'm going to be super brief, as brief as I can. I, I'm not going to plug my company, but I, I've tried for the last six months to a year to provide, I do aircraft, right? That's what I do, salvage, to provide aircraft fuselages for old folks to live in. Um, where, would they, where would you put them? And so that's the question. So we said, hey, let's see if we can find somebody with a piece of property, and if it's for the elderly only, maybe the county will make exceptions. Well, they don't. And I wondered if this gentleman knows of any kind of an approach through the state, maybe, or if anything even exists. I've got, I've got 14 commercial aircraft that I can cut into little sections, and I do that now for people that are building tiny homes and all these other things. But I'm thinking, listen, I've got more than I can use, and I'd love to be able to donate, if you will, if somebody, you know, if somebody at the county said, yeah, we'll we'll make an exception because of the application. All right, Ozzy, that's an interesting idea. I am curious about where you got all those plain fuselages. Where did they come from? It's what I do for a living. I I scrap commercial airliners, and I've got a bunch of them. All right. Wow. Well, Jeff, what do you think about that? That's creative. I mean, I, I think that the one of the things that Ozzy mentioned is that the this tiny home movement is something that has um, grown in attention over time. And I've heard it around shipping containers before. Yes. I've never heard it around airplane fuselages. But, but why not? I, I'm not sure that there's a significant difference between the two. <laughs> um, Mobile home parks are disappearing, though. It's interesting. We had a city council candidate yeah. who said, oh, it's all this talk about tiny homes. We used to call them trailers right and and right and finding the the place which which is what ozzy said too is where do you find the place that's willing to to host them is the real challenge and i think that as we think about florida in particular we have all been through enough hurricane seasons to know that um, having something that is uh, stable housing also has to be uh, hurricane resistant and that has been a real challenge for those in the mobile home community I, i mean I'm fascinated by the idea. I don't have any great ideas of where to go on that, but um, but uh, I'd be. Curious. I like the creativity. I would love to follow up. I yeah. do too. Um, we've got another um, caller on the line. Um, Japels, is that right? This is um, you're on the yeah. line. What's on your mind? Hey, well, let me just comment to the tiny home stuff. Um, they've been talking about that in sci-fi novels for literally thirty or forty years now. In fact, uh, several movies that came out recently, including Ready Player One, which was a Steven Spielberg movie, had the option of stacking up the mobile homes to create mobile home uh, stacks, kind of like a apartment complex where people have ladders and things to get to the higher levels. Huh. 
So that's that's not necessarily a new idea. It's just a re- an idea that we haven't really done in reality yet, yeah. yep. except like you said with the mobile home parks. Now, the reason I was calling was uh, I have two parents who got divorced. They both married American citizens, but they are still Canadian citizens who are resident aliens. Now, they've worked in Florida for most of their life because I'm in my 40s, and I've been here most of my life, which means that they've been here for over 40 years in some cases because they were here before I was born. We went back to Canada for a few years, so I have dual citizenship, but they only have Canadian citizenship with resident alien status. So they get some Social Security benefits, but they should also qualify for some Canadian citizen benefits. But because of the complexities between the two countries, because Canada is more uh, socialist than we are down here, they can't claim all their benefits. So uh, what does the AARP do to help individuals who are resident alien with a situation like my parents? No, Thanks. It's, Thanks for the call. Yeah, it's a good question, and I don't have a lot of great resources for you. We we have really not focused on that area, except to say one of the things that is um, worth pursuing here is the Tampa Bay area is home to one of the best elder law programs in the country. The Stetson Law School in Gulfport has a really strong elder law program. And so there are elder law attorneys across the area, not only graduates from Stetson, but who may be a good resource. It sounds like this is kind of, uh, uh, I mean, it's an issue that intersects between elder law and immigration. And so an immigration lawyer would be probably the other place you have to go. If you're curious, I can see Tom's quizzical face. There is a Canadian Association of Retired Persons out there. Um, There are not that many around the world, but uh, there are organizations that focus on older adults, of course, in many communities. But there is a CARP out there, and I don't know if they would have resources as well. We've got an email from Walter Zip who says, please explain how AARP is not not just an insurance company whose administrators don't make obscene profits. Walter, I think you might be confusing AARP with USAA. Oh, but let me let me weigh in on this. Is AARP an insurance company? We're not an insurance company, <laughs> but it is. But Walter's uh, Walter's uh, belief is is one that I hear often, and here's one of the reasons why. So I mentioned at the very beginning about our founding story and Dr. Andrus. What she wanted to do was advocate in uh, the legislature and Congress, and advocate in the marketplace as well. So like. When she started, there were no senior discounts, and many of us have come to love the fact that if you're willing to admit your age, you're able to to save money (laughs) in some places. One of the things that was really important at the time before Medicare was to negotiate health insurance for retired teachers. And we continue to work with companies that offer products that may use our name. So there are health insurance companies, just as there are lots of other companies that get to use an ARP logo in their advertising. And while ARP is a big organization, many of those companies spend a lot more money on advertising than we do. So it's not uncommon for me to hear from somebody, oh, I have your insurance or Ah, I "I know your insurance and insurance company. We're not. They have our name and they do a really good job of marketing it. And to be clear, I'm not saying that that is true about USAA either. Let's talk briefly, though, about how people can get involved, because one of the goals of the show is to get people involved, not just to talk about problems, but to try to solve them. And one way uh, as I mentioned previously, uh, that AARP helps solve them, is to get people who are really actually being affected by an issue to speak to 
legislators or city council members or county commissioners? Absolutely. How can people become one of those people? No, would love that. And so uh, to, to Tom's point, for for policymakers to really understand an issue, it usually helps for them to know somebody who has that story. And finding somebody who has a story around cost of housing, around cost of prescription drugs, around I- any of the issues that affect those who age is really important because policymakers often don't think about those folks. If you email us, F-L-A-A-R-P, so Florida AARP, F-L-A-A-R-P at ARP.org, we would love to talk to any of your listeners who may have a story like that. And I also want to mention, I hinted at it earlier, the work we do is really volunteer-driven. I mean, there we're a small staff for 2.8 million members. We've got 23 staff members. But we have hundreds of volunteers. Some of them do tax preparation. Some of them teach safe driving. Some of them are speakers. Some of them serve on those uh, uh, pedestrian and complete streets committees. And some go to Tallahassee to advocate on behalf. And you train them on how to do it. At AARP.org slash FL volunteer. All right. Thanks for being with us, Jeff. Thanks to our listeners and callers. And next week we will be rebroadcasting our interview with the authors of the Cuban Sandwich, a a history in layers, which just won a gold medal in the Florida Book Award. So we won't be taking calls next week, but please tune in. Stay tuned for the NPR News, followed by music from Harrison Nash. This is NPR, uh, sorry, this is WMNF Tampa. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Former President Donald Trump cites illegal leaks in claiming he will be arrested today. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office has been investigating hush money payments during the 2016 campaign. 